Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 12, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Abe is the author of a, a brilliant review of Senator Tom Cotton's new book in the November issue of Commentary, which should be going up at some point online in the next 24 hours or so, along with uh, media commentary columnist and AI fellow Christine Rosen's piece in the November issue, which is about Christine. Uh, about a uh, what seemed to be a mild kerfuffle at the Los Angeles Times, but turned into a sort of fascinating story about how a billionaire newspaper owner's woke daughter wreaked havoc at a hometown newspaper. And about, in general, the fact that, um, as has often been the case in history, that uh, newspapers are the province of wealthy men who want to have influence in the communities that they live in. But in this case, this is a wealthy man who decided he wanted his, he wanted to give his daughter a, a little playground to play in. And she started screwing around with the LA times coverage of crime and race yes. and other things. So it's a fascinating story. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of the rise of the new Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Joe Biden went on the inaugural episode of Jake Tapper's show, uh, nine o'clock PM show on CNN. Um, that is the replacement for Chris Cuomo's, uh, long running show. And, um, I, I think we can all be comforted by the fact that the president of the United States said, no, there's not a recession. Every six months, they say there's going to be a recession, but there hasn't been a recession. But if there is a recession, it'll be a very a slight recession. I just want to remind people that according to the what has been the standard definition of recession, uh, we were we were in recession in the second quarter of um, of 2022. Uh, we had two straight quarters of negative economic growth. Uh, from uh, the time that I was a lad, that's all you needed to say that something was a recession. So he has now said there isn't a recession. Somehow this has now become an, uh, a kind of accepted factoid that we're not in recession. <laughs> um, and that it's, you know, it's maybe we'll go into recession, but maybe we won't. And I don't know. And frankly, yeah, if it's a recession, it's an incredibly mild recession where jobs are being created. And, and obviously it's a very weird recession. But I'm just going back to the fact that, uh, you know, if uh, any other president had had two negative quarters of economic growth, I don't think anybody would have any difficulty saying that it was a recession. So, well, I mean, I, 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 yeah. I know okay. you I know you want to make a a, a larger no. point about the interview, oh, no. but um, as I've said on numerous occasions now, there's there are elements about Joe Biden that that are uh, more Trumpy than Trump. And if Trump was slammed for creating the entire realm of alternative facts, um, this is this is the prime example of of an alternative fact here. If you yeah. read this, you you have a recession. We we don't. If you read this transcript in a Trump voice, it would sound exactly like him. He's gonna have. If should you prepare for us? Should you prepare for a recession? He said no, even though we're probably in a recession now. And then he described the recession, saying it will be. Uh, a very slight recession, meaning we will move down very slightly. It was a, um, a very Trumpy expression. 
I, I just Googled the words polling and recession. So I just want to share with you the following. Are we in a recession? Two and three voters say yes. That's morning consult July 13th. That was before the economic report from the Bureau of Economic Analysis that said that the second quarter featured a negative economic growth. So that was prospective. September 7th, 2022, poll. Majority of Americans think U.S. is in a recession, about 76 percent. Um, and so we have a very consistent American public idea, which is that we're in a recession. And guess what? According to the definition of recession that I was taught, we're in a recession. So they think we're in a recession, the public, and the word recession thinks that we're in a recession. And the mainstream media and Biden and his, you know, catamites in the liberal economic world say we're not in a recession. But this is this is he, this is what he did. The bait and switch is what he's been doing constantly and not just on recession. COVID is over. Oh, wait, but my my health representatives are saying COVID's not over. We're not in a recession. We are in a recession. He said to Jake Tapper last night. I've spent billion trillions dollars on climate change, blah, blah, blah. And people really, you know, most of the most Americans really, really approve of what I'm doing. His approval ratings are in the toilet. Like nobody approves of this, but he will sit there and he will repeat this and he will tell you exactly what is not true in his old Joe way. And we're supposed to just take it. It's it's ridiculous. This would I mean, I was kind of appalled by that whole interview. There were no tough questions. Every single, you know, prevarication or as the New York Times likes to call it, yarn spinning narrative that Joe Biden gave as an answer was not followed up on. It was kind of ridiculous. And it was taped in the afternoon. It wasn't live. It was obviously like everything was done to make Joe Biden be at his best. And he still was flailing, in my opinion. Can we do the Russia bits? Oh, please. That was <laughs> he started off really strong. I was like I was impressed by his initial response to um the conditions on the ground in, in Ukraine, where he said he was asked if he believes Joe Biden's a rational actor. And he said, Joe Biden is a rational actor who miscalculated. Perfect. Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin. I'm sorry. Vladimir Putin's rational actor who miscalculated. That is a perfect articulation yeah. of how we should approach this crisis from from a strategic perspective and from a tactical perspective. But then he just proceeded to muddy the waters because um, he goes on to then say, but he describes his objectives. Vladimir Putin stated objectives in this campaign the reconstitution of this Nova Russia on the Black Sea coast, because I just think that's irrational. But then he just goes on and says, well, I think he totally miscalculated. Right. He also said, he said two sentences after he said Biden, uh, that uh, Putin is a rational actor who miscalculated. He said, did you hear that sweet speech that he gave? Like, you know, meaning the speech on the eve of the invasion, that was irrational. And then Tapper says, but that was basically says, wait a minute, didn't you just say rational? And now you're saying he's like, no, the speech, the speech was irrational. irrational. Yeah, right. So um, either he's rational he or he's objective. irrational. He can't both be rational and irrational at no. the same moment. It's incredibly confused. And then he goes on to say that, that Putin has, quote, accomplished what he wanted to do, which is not true, based on exactly what you just said in the prior sentence, Mr. President. <laughs> And then you go on to say that he's going to talk to him at the G20. If he comes up and he wants to talk about a prisoner exchange, for example, then he'll meet with him. Really? Would you meet with him on energy? Would you meet with him on Iran? Terrorism? Environmental issues? Economic issues? Quote, it depends on what he wanted to talk about. No, it doesn't. That's not the policy of this administration, Mr. President. 
Are you familiar I mean, with the was, policy of your administration? It was completely surreal because if you think about it, so Jake Tapper is asking someone whose own thinking is uh, uh, has been called rightly into question um, about to 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 assess the thinking of someone else. Right. Um, Finally, just briefly on this Putin thing, just to close the circle here, he says, I think he's committed war crimes, which is something he has said before. He's, he's called Putin a war criminal. This is within the context of discussing what is Vladimir Putin's off ramp. And you got to understand when you use language like that, that really does close an avenue because that's a death sentence outside your own borders. If we were to actually pursue this as policy and the Hague was to pursue it as policy, it makes it more difficult to deescalate, not easier. So. You know, uh, I heard, I think I was I was listening to the 538 podcast and somebody said something that others have said before, but uh, I thought it was crystallizing, which is that Biden speaks like he's in a gaggle. He's still in the Senate, even though he hasn't been in the Senate for 14 years. But like he'd come out of his office and there are some reporters standing there. You come off the Senate floor and there are some reporters standing there and they're like, what's going on on the floor? And you say things like, Nah, the president really screwed up on this one, you know, meaning Bush or whatever, you know, uh, we're really not going to take this lying down and blah, 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 blah. And that basically he talks about things in these interviews, this and the 60 Minutes interview, as though he's a senator, you know, delivering a sort of insider opinion uh, as a partisan political player and not like the president of the United States, every one of whose words is gone over in foreign ministries with an electron microscope to figure out whether there are changes in policy and what they might mean and what they what they might reflect about what's going on inside the Pentagon or inside Foggy Bottom or anything like that. And it's just he's in, incredibly sloppy and and kind of irresponsible and we don't know what to take seriously or not seriously you know uh he's just thumb sucking like why is he speculating about what putin wants he's got to be the deeds not words person he's the leader of the free world he's a kind of global policeman what putin is thinking has nothing to do with his actions well right he could have just said i don't care what putin thinks you cannot invade a sovereign <laughs> territory and claim it as your own without the rest of the world coming down upon you and you know making sure you don't do that anymore i mean he could have been much more quite frankly he needs to use a little more cold war rhetoric in this moment and he, he they've clearly been shying away from that except when he's talking to democratic donors that was the other interesting thing where you know he he was uh tapper was pushing him about like didn't you know the armageddon statements and he's like oh i don't know if he'll use nuclear weapons i mean again a, a very confusing message about an incredibly uh anxiety inducing subject for the rest of the world when you're talking about the use of nuclear weapons he just can talk less. If he was capable of it, he would be fine because he started off that that response to that question and saying, well, Putin should leave Ukraine. Russian forces should leave Ukraine. And that, that's, that's the off ramp. That's the beginning, middle and end of it, as our position is now, you know, strategists can talk about off ramps and what have you. But as John said, the president of the United States probably shouldn't, but he can't help himself but go on three or four other sentences. He starts off really sharp and then launches into orbit. And you just lose him. You lose the, the sharp point. is the talking point he's been given. Right. The That's rest the of it point. is Joe Biden foreign <laughs> policy disaster. Stick to the bullet points. Um, 
I say I have a, a, a column in the New York Post this morning about about the Biden uh, Tapper interview last night, and I think I made this point last week uh, about the Armageddon thing, but I, I make it again, and I want to share it with you and see how you guys respond to it, which is the last thing you would think he would want to say is, oh boy, you know, we could be heading for Armageddon. This is the, we're, we're at the most dangerous point in world history since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, on the one hand, I guess it's good because, you know, if it's a crisis, then people rally around the president or something like that. But if you want to keep the temperature cool and keep give yourself range of motion and range of action in a very fluid situation, you don't want to be talking brinksmanship, right? So why is he doing it? It's a very weird impulse. And it came to me that back in March of 2021, he had Michael Beschloss and various other PMs, John Meacham, into the White House. And they were like, you could be LBJ in 19, you could be uh, FDR. You know, you can be FDR, you can be LBJ, you have the House and the Senate, pass, you know, historic legislation and, you know, be a world historical figure, of course, uh, LBJ had 69 Democratic senators when he was re-elected in 1964, and Biden had 50 Democratic senators, and the analogy is psychotic. But nonetheless, Biden clearly bit and like thought, yes, that's who I want to be, as opposed to Mr. Compromise, I can work with both sides of the aisle guy. So what is it that he gets out of talking about Armageddon, and this is the worst thing since the Cuban Missile Crisis? He gets three new initials to liken himself to JFK and he is you know 80 years old and you know his formative presidential teenage years were spent under Kennedy and I'm sure you know he's got starry eyes every time somebody mentions John F Kennedy and when he looks at the pool and thinks about Kennedy raping Mimi Farnsworth in the pool or whatever but uh you know JFK and so now he's LBJ FDR and JFK because he's got the Cuban Missile Crisis just like JFK. I mean, he wants it to be the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because then, you know, he's being, you know, he's elevated into a world historical figure. That's bananas and is a mark of his, you know, the fact that he is kind of, you know. Extremely vain. History's fool. Um <laughs> You know, I mean, he said all this stuff last night. I guess, look, he's they're going into the midterms. He said, like, who's done more than I have in his first two years in office? Well, you know what? A lot of people actually. Uh, well, and he shouldn't Obama pose the question more than he has. And he poses the question in that way. It's also very bad because the people who, who are looking at their grocery bill like me every week say, oh, you've done plenty. Thanks very much. Right. Stop doing what you're doing. Right. Well, that, but of course, so he's so look, it's very fair. He, he making kind of the political case for why a people shouldn't think he's too old and he can run again because he's been effective. That's an argument that he wants to make. And the other is vote for Democrats. We've done a lot for you. Let me just remind you of what we've done. We passed the, the, the Act, and we have the Trishmagegi Act, and we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which he mentioned three times. Um, and, you know, none of these is popular. But, I mean, I guess you can accept their popularity if you, you know, you do that kind of thing that Trump did, which you just repeat yourself over and over and over again. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Ain't nobody running for office in the Democratic Party across the United States who is saying, vote for me, I voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, 
think it's Nobody. called the Billions Trillions Act, John, hmm. according to the president. Right, billions. Anyway, <laughs> the billions, no, trillions, billions act. <laughs> no Democrat is running on what he talked about. Now that's fine. He doesn't have. He could talk about whatever he wants to talk about. And again, if what he's trying to do is say, "I'm in very fit shape. I want you to. I want to run again in 2024. I'm starting to make the case that I should run again in 20." That's that's where he is personally. Um, politically, three quarters of the country think we're in a recession, which we are. Uh, though it is already a very mild recession and he, you know, and uh, he's like poo-pooing that there could be a recession in the future. And meanwhile, by the way, that recession could be a double dip recession, meaning we could in this quarter come out of recession with the, you know, with the decrease in gas prices, which will have dominated this period, even though I know gas prices are going up now, but when they get to the third quarter, we could say have, 0.2% 0.2% growth, we pull out a recession, and then we go right back in, in the fourth quarter, you know, I mean, that is very possible. And that's sort of what JP Morgan and other, you know, forecasters are kind of speculating. Um, Let's talk a little bit about gas prices, because okay. that relates to the Saudi portion of this interview. Wait, can, I, can I just can I just jump George, in on one, yeah, uh, yeah, one yeah, more point, because it, it relates to what John's saying. Um, it would have been miraculous If Jake Tapper had said a fraction of a fraction of what you just said in response to to Biden's claims here, right? Zero pushback, no follow up questions. Well, look what I've accomplished. Well, what what have you? Let's let's look at that supposed Inflation Reduction Act. How has that actually affected people? Um, Nothing. I mean, it is sickening. I mean, exactly like the, the 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 60 minutes interview, which I hesitate to call an interview. These are presentations. You know, these are sort of serving up, up the, 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 the president's image on on a platter for you for you to, to see, including, by the way, in the case of Jake Tapper last night, he framed the Russia issue in terms of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and he brought up JFK in advance. That's it. Right. But I, I, th- I think that was already in <clears throat> that was already in Biden's head. Uh, nonetheless, anyway, uh, you were, uh, yeah, no, just, you were going, you were going somewhere. just briefly about gas prices because gas prices are going up. One of the reasons why they went down, perhaps the primary reason why they went down initially collapsed as it were, is a lack of demand. Um, deliveries were down, uh, uh, orders were down and, uh, refining capacity was down. So there was, um, there was multiple, you know, conditions leading to that decrease, but one of them was just the bad economic outlook that people have. Now, that seems to have improved uh, somewhat, but OPEC's stated rationale for pairing back production is that every forecaster in this business sees a global economic slowdown on the horizon. Um, whether that's true or not, I mean, de- Democrats say it's because they want Russia wants they want Russia to win the war out of nowhere. Um, but their stated rationale was there will be decreased demand. And so Joe Biden was pressed on this by Jake Tapper, you know, when going to Saudi Arabia, given the fist bump, um, a lot of the the entire press rose up against him and Democrats were very uncomfortable and you got nothing out of it. Um, And he's trying to, you know, explain what happened here. And and he says, I didn't go to the Middle East. I didn't go about oil is the exact quote. Again, read it in Trump's voice and you will hear Donald Trump. Um, He said, I made sure we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East. That was the whole reason why he went to Jeddah because America's entire commitment 
to the Middle East and the Persian Gulf was on the line. And then he subsequently laid out all the things that he had achieved based on his engagement with the many nations in the Middle East. Um, they have had a lot of time to think of an answer that doesn't insult your intelligence on this one, and they still don't have it. Well, they Maybe don't have isn't. it because they don't have it because um, they have this delusion. You see <clears throat> that um, our entire foreign policy was screwed up by Trump, and they are restoring it to normal. And one of the places on Earth that, inarguably, we found ourselves in a better position than we were before Trump became president was the American relationship with Saudi Arabia and the general uh, Persian Gulf attitude toward Israel, which has uh, you know, underwent this kind of revolutionary improvement. And um, Biden comes in as Obama's, you know, ex uh, vice president and the Saudis are remember that Obama tilted toward Iran. And then what is and so we're restoring uh, continuity to our foreign policy with Trump as this um, rogue actor. So we're going to go back into the JCPOA. Let's negotiate. Let's offer, you know, basically, let's go to the table with a hundred billion dollar offer to Iran to re restart the JCPOA, the existential crisis nature of which is the cause in part of this new entente between the Saudis and Israel and the and the and the entire this kind of renovation of the diplomacy and diplomatic relationships in the Middle East. And he's going in to say he wants to show that, you know, we're not leaving the Middle East. They don't want him. I mean, the Saudis, the Saudis look at him and look at the Democrats and look at, you know, the Obama record and say, we don't want you here. So I'm not saying that the Saudis are admirable or, you know, people that, you know, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is a hero or anything like that. But Biden thinking that he can just go there and give a fist bump and that's enough to deal with the policy implications of his own approach to Iran, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East was preposterous. And his claim, the by the way, that, you know, so... He was framing the, the, the that Israel can fly uh, over Saudi Arabia now as, as something that he sort of achieved. Um, everyone knew that was coming. That that was the the, the groundwork was laid uh, for that um, by the Abraham Accords. Um, if anything, there's an argument that that Biden's flubbing our relations with the Saudis from the start only delayed it. It's continuity, certainly, with the Trump administration, though they would never admit to that. I mean, if you're looking at this from the outside, uh, the Biden administration's energy policy is the policy of a nation that doesn't have a policy. Uh, it is to curtail domestic production while demanding foreign producers produce extra, you know, extra, you know, quantities to, in order to meet our own self-imposed efficiency. He promised at the beginning of his administration to continue to isolate the Maduro regime, to not even talk with the Maduro regime. That's out the window to the consternation of, uh, of uh, Senator Menendez, actually, who's not so concerned about our policy towards Saudi Arabia because he called this guy a, a pariah, wanted to isolate Riyadh in the international environment, and then goes ahead and, and says, you know, goes over and fist bumps him in the obvious attempt to ingratiate himself with the kingdom, and now turns on a dot, pivots 180 back to pariah status on steroids, trying to actually decouple 
America from its partnership relationships with Riyadh. It is a manic policy. It's not a policy. It's totally ad hoc and suggests that because we're so unmoored, we're so just buffeted by events, we're really, everybody else has the whip hand and they're using it. Well, this is, he, but this is in keeping with Biden's presidency so far. It's reactionary. He was a react, you know, elect me, I will be the reaction to Trump, which is supposedly stay calm. The only things that they, they've taken the initiative to do that haven't been reactionary policymaking has been spending, overspending on things like climate change, which people right now are not in any state of mind to embrace, uh, given how royal the economy is. So I just, I think, I actually think that is the one consistent theme so far of his of his presidency. It's reactionary, both domestically and, and in foreign policy. Look, Senator Menendez, <clears throat> Senator Durbin, uh, Democrats in the Senate are looking at a different landscape from the landscape they were looking at three weeks ago. The Democratic momentum to hold the Senate stalled. And then there was this body blow last week, potential body blow last week, in the idea that uh, the oil production was going to be limited by OPEC plus. Um, a moment at which you could immediately say, <clears throat> given the Saudi decision to do this, we are going to revisit the executive order that suspended uh, drilling on, on federal lands and permitting for uh, pipelines and oil terminals and all of that uh, because we're in a crisis as opposed to saying I'm going to empty the strategic oil petroleum reserve out in a, in a in an effort to create some kind of a you know flood the market a little bit and keep prices a little low um, to say okay you Saudis this is how you want to play the game OPEC plus uh, we will you know we will bury you with our uh, actual incredibly thriving domestic oil production economy and we have 10 billion people particularly at the price point that we are at who are like chomping at the bit to do this work and um you know we none of that is happening instead it's like we're gonna get you there will be consequences oh there are gonna be consequences you know, you know what occurs to me about what this consequences, by the way, can I just ask you what consequences? I mean, well, they're talking openly about pairing back or curtailing future arms sales to the kingdom as though this is this. We're the only game in town. We ain't. We sell people arms so they don't buy them from China and Russia. Right. And I, I don't even know what arms sales we're talking about here, because we're talking about limiting future arms sales. So current arms sales, by the way, exist under contract and things like that. Like, I don't even know. It's all right. And that's the other thing is that crap. all arms sales money goes to the U.S. And we're selling people weapons. Yeah, we make them here. No, but it's but it's anyway. It's bullcrap. We don't have we don't have consequences that we can bring to bear on them in the way they're just lying to people oh when the senate gets back you know wait till your father gets home you know i mean but i mean they're shaking in their boots at the senate like this is really i don't even know what the senate has to do i i what has the senate got to do with this well that's it they approve the arms sales yeah but i mean when what arm sales are um, we in the middle we, there's like the, three billion dollars worth of arm sales 
Right. Between the U.S. and Saudis, including some advanced stuff, annual air stuff, Patriot annually. Missiles. I don't know. I can look. Okay, this up. so so you know, I, I you know that it's hot air, and it sounds like hot air. And when you're when you're willing to say, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do, oh boy, mm, consequences is a coming. You know, like that is embarrassing. So either do something or don't do something. You know, don't. You know, this is all just gas. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all gas. And I don't mean natural gas. I mean, you know, methane gas. But it's all, it's actually all damage control, you know, the, yeah. the sort of the entire interview from soup to nuts. What? All right. Let's we'll start with Armageddon. What, 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 what did you mean when you told everyone that we're, you know, like around the corner from Armageddon? Uh, uh, now let's talk about how your, your, your oil plan went wrong with the Saudis. Uh, and and this this recession, what's what's going on here, you know, and, and and your age, none of it. He's on the back foot on absolutely everything, you know. It, it was um, and that in itself, and then he flails in in his defense, and that right. in itself is going to instills the very opposite of confidence. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, when you see a president flailing like that, it may make you want to go into bed and pull your you know, put your head under the covers and, you know, hide uh, from Armageddon. Uh, if you're going to do that, you should do it in comfort. You know how you do that in comfort? You get Bolin Brand sheets. When you're ready to hop into a soft, cozy bed, the sheets make a big difference. And Bolin Brand sheets use only the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness that only gets more luxurious with every wash. Why? Because Bolin Branch focuses on thread quality not thread count. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they're not made with the best organic cotton fibers in the world. And these are over 25,000 rave customer reviews. Show it. Buttery, cozy, and super breathable. The Bowling Branch sheets are perfect for every season. They come in nine colors, fit all mattress sizes. And best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So try the sheets that will make the fall the coziest season of the year. Get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. All right. So let's uh let's 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 move off this to uh let me ask you guys a question. Um Oh, first of all, Noah, I guess we we have to apologize uh, for something that happened yesterday. Let's not go, we want to like rehash it. But um, we, uh, in a discussion of the J.D. Vance, Tim Ryan debate in Ohio, uh, said, uh, talked about something that Vance had said that uh, we or you attributed. Yes, uh, me, as, I blew as, it. It's yeah, okay, so just I was... do it. Yeah. I was reading the New York Times update and uh, for some reason the, the Times and I'm, you know, Times has a tendency to do this, but it's still my fault that uh, the contextual uh, case that was made in the in the Times write up of the J.D. Vance, uh, Tim Ryan debate suggested that he was talking about Trump. J.D. Vance was not talking about Trump when he said he admires his uh, his accomplishments or what admires his service. What he doesn't admire is his accomplishments. He was talking about his opponent. Um, so we had 10 minutes of analysis based on my erroneous observation that is entirely invalid. My apologies to you, dear listener, and to the Vance campaign. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so, um, but I, 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 I was thinking a lot uh, in the last 48 hours 
about the Herschel Walker story, which we went into a lot last week about Herschel Walker and the uh, abortion that he paid for or is alleged to have paid for uh, from one of the mothers of his children with some, you know, with a card and a a canceled check or something like that, showing that he gave her $700 um, and asked her how she was feeling. And uh, there is a lot of consternation among uh, uh, liberals and uh, others about how you see this proves that the GOP has lost its soul because it is not coming down on Herschel Walker. uh, And that here we are not coming down on Herschel Walker, uh, Republicans and conservatives, because they just are hungry for power and they he's a bad candidate and Trump made him go and now everyone's sucking up to him and Mitch McConnell isn't cutting him off and all of that right so I was sort of thinking about this and thinking about how it is very peculiar to me that a party that is running on an abortion on demand uh, national abortion on demand uh, regime uh, that was interrupted by the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs should be enraged that they're hit on somebody for being insufficiently pro-life isn't playing as well in pro-life quarters as it should. And then I move on to what happened yesterday in Pennsylvania. So NBC's Dasha Burns, who interviewed uh, Fetterman before the stroke and then yesterday uh, said he could not make small talk and that he could only respond to her questions as they were being transcribed essentially on a teleprompter in front of him so he could read them and then respond to them, but that he could not take them in apparently orally, you know, uh, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y. John Fetterman is obviously cognitively impaired from a stroke in a serious way, and what happened in the hour or two after Dasha, uh, Dasha's report, I can't think can't, Burns, Dasha Burns' report came out, uh, wagons began to circle. I was going to call it a pile on, actually. Yeah. Wagons are more civilized. Yeah, they yeah. liberal journalists absolutely piled on her for pointing out what voters of Pennsylvania have known and, and anyone who has seen Fetterman post-stroke struggle. Uh, with a public appearance knows she did her job she reported on her uh understanding and experience with this candidate and for that she will be punished she had lots of you know kara swisher who then you know who was like oh this is just like autism other people called her ableist for pointing out that he was having these struggles no she did her job as a journalist and for that she will be punished so uh he's a democrat i should <laughs> yeah i i just i i i hate what about but this is this is what aboutism on on stilts uh, for good reason, which is to say, Herschel Walker is a compromise candidate. Georgians are going to have to choose between Herschel Walker, a compromise candidate, and Raphael Warnock, who is also a compromise candidate, who turns out has been taking money illicitly from his church, um, uh, and uh, and and like the church bought him an apartment building, and then he t- took the rents and he tried to evict people. And all of that, and you know, may have run over his ex-wife's foot with his car. Also, so he's a compromised candidate. Walker is a very compromised candidate, and these are bad choices. And it's it stinks for Georgia and the country that this is what's happened. But there it is. And then we have Dr. Oz, who is not a good candidate, and Fetterman, who is 
cognitively impaired as a result of a tragic stroke at the age of 48. It's terrible. I feel very, very sorry for him. He does not have the right to become senator from Pennsylvania because we should all feel sorry for him and because, you know, stroke victims are people too and uh, should be able to be employed wherever they want to be employed. It is obviously the case that somebody who has an incredible difficulty listening or hearing, unless, you know, we don't, we, we assume that he will improve and people do improve with strokes and all of that, but we don't know that. And the Senate is a verbal oral institution. Things happen. You have to sit there and listen to other people give speeches. You have to give speeches. You have to like have conversations with people. If he cannot converse with people, if he cannot hear what people are saying, the idea that, uh, that, you know, he is not to be sort of judged, not morally or 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 spiritually, or but medically and practically as being fit for the this is what the word fit means. Nope. Hey, what he has the right to is someone to tell him you're not in a good situation right now. Worry about your health and recovery. Don't 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 let us torture you. <laughs> prop you up, run you through this insane uh, gamut here. Um, you need help. I mean, what's going on is grotesque. There was uh, a very popular cover piece in New York Magazine this week. It made a big splash. It's Rebecca Trace Tristar called The Vulnerability of John Fetterman. And it was widely shared by people who had not read it. The only reason why I say they had not read it is because if you read the article, you find out that this is not a vulnerability at all. It is a manufactured issue. And if it's not a manufactured issue, it's actually a positive for John Fetterman on the trail. This is her conclusion. She assumes, she, she says, the lack of transparency about this health condition would be unsettling, but there's been ample coverage of Fetterman's health problems, equating, by the way, the Democratic campaign with the media, which is an interesting reveal. She says that he's taken, says that, you know, they released this doctor's note six months ago, which an NBC News reporter yesterday said was six months ago. Um, and that has not put the issue to rest. She's uh, said that he's taken neurocognitive tests, which actually put him, quote, into the normal range on the cognition spectrum, sleep well. America. But then she finally goes on to say that, you know, his his condition gives you the is is, is something you can relate to, because all of us have had a person with cognitive debilities in their in their life, have had strokes, have gone through a difficult process of recovery. It's sort of relatable. Right. I mean, everybody can kind of relate to this. And then you have this pile on yesterday that suggests the Democratic Party wants to make this issue invalid to even talk about. It's like talking about Tammy Duckworth Duckworth's um wheelchair right just because he needs this closed captioning and she needs a wheelchair what's the difference well the anyway. difference is tammy duckworth can do her job in the u.s senate and john fetterman probably cannot look it's clearly disingenuous if the shoe was on the other foot this would not even be a conversation that we would be having every democrat would say he's impaired He's a Republican. You know, you can't vote for him. They need to they need to get rid of him and do Indeed. something. Well, a month ago, a month ago in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Democratic Party could have gotten together and said, John Fetterman cannot be our candidate. Connor Lamb, we are there was a there was a procedure, a modality that could have been taken place in which Connor Lamb could have become the senatorial candidate and would have walked, probably walked into the 
given given the strength of the the top of the ticket and the psychosis of the Republican candidate for governor, who is a repulsive, disgusting figure who should be thrown into the garbage heap and compacted, uh, Doug Mastriano, a filthy anti-Semite piece of garbage, uh, and terrible in every other way. So uh, Shapiro is going to win. And uh, and he would pull Connor Lamb along with him. And there's Fetterman. I don't think he's endangering Shapiro, but you know, Oz, as I say, not a very good candidate. Um, apparently, according to Selena Zito and others, doing the work in the state now, having been lazy and weird right after having won the nomination and going to Greece and hanging out, in, or maybe not Greece, I guess he doesn't go to Greece, but uh, I don't know where he went, but uh, hanging out wherever he was hanging out. And now he's like going to city and city and county and county and sort of like doing the spade work necessary to get yourself a successful governor's win, a successful win for office. But I mean, can anybody doubt that if the shoe were on the other foot, Rebecca Traister would be screaming and yelling about how the Republicans, you know, just because they want their vote for fascism, they'll support anybody. Well, I was going to say, like, if, if the shoe were on the other foot, the concern in the liberal mainstream media coverage of a candidate like that would be who is actually going to control him when he gets power in the Senate. If he wins, who is going to be the puppet master, right? So in this sense, I think one of the reasons perhaps that the media in particularly in particular are doubling down on on protecting Fetterman and and not wanting to actually be clear-eyed and honest and do their job about about the downsides to his tragic stroke. There was a or that it, Biden that they would have to do the same thing for Biden. Oh, in the, I mean, there, there's there's okay. you've got to be consistent, right? So yeah. they're going to consistently defend someone who's cognitively dysfunctional because they'll probably have to do it two years from now too. Kara yeah. Swisher, who's a popular podcast host, said she had a very long two-hour conversation with the guy and he was lucid, he was present, he had no deficiencies, he had she's experienced a stroke herself so she knows what it looks like and he's way along the path to recovery and all of this is a manufactured issue and also how dare you she ought to release the transcript of that then if she feels so strong well also she's a <laughs> podcaster so she right. had a conversation over the telephone or whatever uh uh the nbc live news reporter yeah the nbc news reporter was sitting across from him speaking and her words were being transcribed you know automatically by you know double dragon or whatever it is that does that now i'm really showing my age because i think that was the voice activated program from the 80s um double dragon i think it was <laughs> also a very good arcade game okay thank you dragon was the name of the voice to text software anyway she was sitting across from him having been unable to have a small talk conversation with him and watching him as he responded speaking after reading, which of course suggests a very significant cognitive impairment in the sense that he can process words by reading them and then he can respond to them, but he cannot hear. Now, again, maybe he'll get better or maybe he'll get 40% better or 50%. It doesn't matter. Like, this isn't even an ideological quest. This is a, not a practical quest. This is... The word fitness is a health word. We talk about whether people are fit or unfit for office. He is clearly unfit for office. Maybe he'll be fit for office in March, or maybe he won't. You know, it is wildly irresponsible that he is even running. It's not good for his health. It's I don't care what he's. It's not good for his recovery. 
And it is not good for the people of Pennsylvania who are, but I, they're I, the ones who are going to have to make this judgment, not me. I think somebody should address, should force Mr. Fetterman to address the rumor that his intention is to resign the post once he takes it and and for the, uh, the, the governor, whoever that is, presumably Shapiro, to appoint his wife to the seat. I think you should dispel those rumors right now. I, I mean, don't know why no one's asked him about it, because we know about it. It's been reported. That's an interesting point. Let's see if somebody who isn't a who 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 isn't there to be a black blocking tackle uh, interviews him, and then and then and then deals with that. Uh, okay, so I think we have probably covered the waterfront here. I'm sure there are ten thousand things we could be talking about. Except that we for haven't. rest in peace, Angela Lansbury. I just have to say. That. Oh, okay. There, what an amazing. Here. Okay, I will say this about Angela, Angela Lansbury. Okay, she died. She's ninety six years old. Uh, Angela Lansbury made her first film appearance at the age of 19 in Gaslight in 1944. Her final appearance on screen uh, was in Mary Poppins Returns in 2018. That is 74 years she was uh, a an active performer. I saw her twice on stage. I saw, three times, actually, I saw her on stage, but I saw her at her height of her powers in the 70s as as Rose and Gypsy, the greatest female part in the American theater, and as Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd, maybe the second greatest part in the American musical theater. And she was, without question, the greatest stage actress, musical actress I have ever seen or ever hoped to see, and I've seen you know, everybody in the last half century. Uh, and of course, a very uh, beloved figure uh, otherwise. But I think it's important to note that she got multiple Oscar nominations and and then, of course, became this huge television star um, with the longest running mystery show in television history. So she's like the leading, you know, whodunit person in in television history jessica fletcher um, murder she jessica wrote fletcher, appointment yeah. television when i was a kid everybody yeah. sat down to watch murder she wrote <laughs> yeah and uh but she was the greatest stage actress of my of my lifetime so far she was absolutely uh, chilling in manchurian candidate too oh she could, her range was extraordinary because she could yeah. do this kind of wonderful yeah. musical theater but then she could yeah. turn in this dramatic performance yeah. which absolutely like I said, just chilling. But well, just amazing. to show her range, by the way, not to be like insane, but so Manchurian Candidate is 1962 and she is 37 years old and the person playing her son uh, for whom she has, and you know, this is amazing to think it's 62. It's before, you know, it's before movies really kind of like went into, you know, anything goes, like has an incestuous yen for her own son whom she has, who is her sleeper agent uh, in this incredibly complicated North Korean plot to take over the United States and, you know, has this astonishing scene with him uh, where she actually makes out with him. I mean, I can't even believe that this was released in 1962, but if you go back a year, less than a year, again, 37 years old, she plays Elvis's mother in blue Hawaii. And you can go watch this. It's on Amazon, I think, for free, Amazon Prime. And uh, she's playing this Southern Liberty gibbet, kind of like overbearing mother. 
like the polar opposite of, of Mrs. Island, the, the, the villain of the Manchurian candidate, a comedy performance. And she is sort of like a dingbat and a peerless dingbat. This, by the way, is one of the most misogynistic movies you will ever see. Blue Hawaii, it's really sort of like an interesting object lesson in what was thought to be acceptable in the de- in the depiction of women of all ages. Um, but that she was that one, and then like, you know, less than a year later was the other. It's not even range. I don't know what, what you even call that, because she was playing exactly the same part, which is the young, mother of a young veteran returning home from the military. I mean, it's literally the same part. And it is as though you said, okay, play it this way or play it, you know, play it as a kind of, you know, foil, comic foil, or play it as a diabolical villain. It's kind of just amazing. That's too happy a note to end on. So I want to leave us with some morosity. Uh, The producer price index just came in and prices rose last month. Uh, by 0.4% over expectations, year over year, 8.5%. So we have remained in the middle eight. Inflation remains. And that's ahead of the uh, consumer price index, which probably isn't going to be great. Um, Boy, that's, uh, well, I mean, again, it depends on when they close out the consumer price index thing, because that could be, could have been lower because of gas prices, if if it if it's an average of the last four weeks and prices have only gone up in the past week, but true, but that would just be so, gas and everything else yeah. would be up. I think this is the important thing I want to just if we're going there and I mentioned this thing about how three quarters of the country, according to the last poll, think that we're in a recession, even though the pangandra seemed to want to convince everybody that we're not in a recession, right? It doesn't matter what people think or don't like. In other words, like it doesn't matter how it's spun. These inflationary numbers, these are felt by every single household in the United States. I mean, the wealthier you get, the better off you get, the less impact that they have. But, um, you know, uh, and the presses and, you know, and the and the elite class are made up of people who are feeling much less of the effects than anybody else, except maybe in the stock market decline, which is, of course, 20, 25% now uh, from the highs earlier in the year. But um, so I can't you know, sing a step in the right direction from bed knobs and broomsticks right now. That wouldn't oh, help. No, that's not going to help. <laughs> Her other great reference. I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, it's like you can't talk your way out of this. I'm sorry. You know, maybe Democrats are going to be able to defy gravity by talking about abortion in January 6th. This is a real interesting test of whether or not, uh, you know, uh, these these issues are equal to sort of pocketbook issues and general sort of like uh, world menace issues. Everything we know about politics over the last hundred years in this country would tell you otherwise. And the only thing that tells you that that's not the case is the current polling and the polling on the generic ballot. And polling has been pretty bad in midterm elections for the last three or four cycles. So I don't know. Like, I wouldn't want to be them. That's all I'm saying. I would not want to be the Democrats going into November right now. And there was a point in June or July when you thought, you know what, they got the momentum behind them. Maybe who that they're who you want to be. I don't think so now. 
See, I don't know if you call that crushing morosity or not. I don't know. Depends on who you are. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoretz. Keep the candle burning.